As Christians, we know we are to have faith, but is truly believing in Jesus' resurrection a reasonable option? Today, we are in the 20th chapter of John, as Brother Greg explains the reliability of the resurrection. We are so glad you took time to listen to our podcast today. We know you will be blessed, and our prayer is that through today's message, you will experience the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit like never before. Please uh, take your source of Scripture and turn to the 20th chapter of the Gospel of John. Just hold your place there. We'll come to it eventually. We'll walk through those 10 verses and show you five truths. I want to preach you this morning about the reliability of the resurrection. And my assertion is this, for, for those of us who claim to follow Christ and believe in His bodily resurrection, we do not have to check our brains at the door and follow Him in blind faith. There's great reasonableness to belief in the resurrection. When you do not approach it from a scientific standpoint, which you can't because it's not a scientific fact, it's a historical reality. When you approach the resurrection from an historical reality... There's great reasonableness in believing in it. And I want to help solidify that for you in many of your minds. You know, when you think about Easter, it's kind of amazing today that billions of Christians are gathering in various uh, places of worship all around this globe to proclaim our belief in a bodily resurrection of Jesus the Christ. We as Christians hold fast to the truth that Jesus died on Friday at the hands of Roman crucifiers, but rose on Sunday by the power and the might of a sovereign God. Now, is that myth, superstition, or is that historical reality? The message of Easter is Jesus' death secured our forgiveness. It satisfied God's justice. It appeased God's wrath, and it atoned for our sins. Did it happen? Or was it just made up? The message of Easter is Jesus' resurrection secured for us life, both spiritually abundant here on earth and eternal in heaven later. But did it really happen or was it fabricated decades later by a group of superstitious believers who wanted to form some kind of new religion? Well, I want to assert that the death, burial, and resurrection did occur. It is a historical reality, and we Christians can base our lives on it. It is the foundational truth of Christianity. In fact, without the death, burial, and resurrection, there is no Christianity. And please hear me, and don't get freaked out over this statement. I'm not trying to be controversial, but I want to tell you a truth you need to understand. Christianity is not based on the teachings of Jesus. Christianity is based on the resurrection of Jesus. You can have the teachings of Jesus and not have Christianity if you do not have the resurrection. Without the resurrection, our religion has no meaning, no power. It's void. It's empty. And we of all people are to be most pitied. But because the resurrection is true, we have reasons to celebrate. We have reasons to shout. We have reasons to get excited. Now listen, I don't want anybody dancing in here without their clothes on, but when David danced in front of the ark, that's the way we should act when we think about the resurrection. Just do it with your clothes on. Look with me at the, word, uh, at the words of the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote this. 
About 25 years after the resurrection, Paul wrote this. I passed on to you what was most important. Most important. The most significant truth that Paul knew of. The most important. The foundational truth. The central truth. What had been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins. Christ the ethical teacher, Christ the miracle worker, Christ the healer, Christ the feeder. That's all significant, but without Christ the riser, none of that matters. Christ died for our sins just as the Old Testament prophesied that He would. He was buried for three days in a borrowed tomb that He gave back. And then He was raised from the dead on the third day just as the Old Testament, particularly the book of Isaiah, said would happen. Paul keeps going. He's just kind of showing off here. And he says, after Jesus rose from the dead, he was seen by Peter, who was willing to die for his belief in the resurrection. He was seen by the twelve, who were willing to die for their belief in the resurrection. After that, he was seen by more than 500 followers at one time, most of whom, 25 years later, when Paul wrote this statement, are still living and can verify the fact that they saw the risen Jesus. Then he was seen by James, his brother. Hey, what would it take for you to convince your siblings you're God? It ain't happening. They know you all too well. But James, who grew up with Jesus and rejected Jesus during his ministry while hearing the teachings of Jesus, then later saw the risen Jesus and said, you're God. Last of all, uh, and later all the apostles, then last of all, as though someone born out of the due season, I saw him also. By the way, think about this. You had Saul of Tarsus, the Pharisee, who knew the teachings of Jesus, and knowing the teachings of Jesus, did everything he could to put the church out of business, then saw the risen Jesus and became his biggest proponent. But not everyone believes in the resurrection. It has become popular in in our postmodern America uh, for people to claim that the stories of the resurrection were fabricated decades after the event uh, was supposed to have taken place. Uh, There are skeptics who claim Jesus didn't really die. Oh, please. And there are others who claim he didn't rise. Oh, think about this with me. He was put to death by the greatest executioners of all time. You simply did not survive a Roman crucifixion. And and here's why. If you survived the Roman crucifixion, the Roman soldiers who crucified you took your place. That was their punishment for not doing a good job. So if you didn't die on their cross, if they nailed you to the cross and, and stood it up and dropped it in the ground and you didn't die, they took your place. So they made sure you died. All right, you, just, you didn't survive Roman crucifixion. Plus, you think about it in Jesus' particular standpoint, and in his particular case, he was scourged, he was beaten, he was whipped. 39 times he got lashed by the cat of nine tails. He was legally not allowed, even by the Romans, to be lashed 40 times because 40 times normally killed you. So he got 39 lashes. He didn't get 40 because 40 would kill him, but he got 39 lashes, so he's beaten within an inch of his life. Then he was nailed to a cross, hung up, dropped in a hole, dislocating every man your joint in his body, standing there on the cross, not able to breathe. He stood there for six hours and you think he didn't die? I mean, that's just not reasonable for people to claim that he hung on a cross but didn't die. 
And what explanation do you have for a group of depressed, dejected, despondent followers of a Jewish rabbi from a subjugated little country who later then, within two generations, turned the world upside down? I don't think a lie could do that. See, Christians assert the resurrection is not a myth made up hundreds of years later. We, we, we flat out deny that. It just doesn't make sense. It, just, it doesn't make sense. But we believe the resurrection is true because there were eyewitnesses who saw it and wrote about it during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses and talked about it and based their lives on it and died for it. We believe in the resurrection is true because the early church was survived both Jewish persecution and Roman persecution was built on the truth of the resurrection. And if the resurrection wasn't true, the church would have never survived. We believe in the resurrection because the first believers gave their life for it. And yes, people will die for sincere beliefs. There are suicide bombers who die almost on a weekly basis for sincere beliefs. But no one dies for a lie. And Peter would have known if Jesus was resurrected or not. The eyewitnesses who saw the risen Jesus after seeing the dead Jesus wrote about seeing the risen Jesus. And they wrote about it in such historically accurate fashion we can believe it's true today. And so what I want us to do, I want us to go through uh, John chapter 20, uh, 10 verses. We're going to look at five statements. And here is my presupposition. You would not write these five statements if you knew the resurrection was a lie. You wouldn't write these if you were making it up decades later to fabricate a myth to create a new religious movement. You just wouldn't write this because it didn't add credibility to you. It would be too easy to verify and prove to be false. You would only write these five statements if, beyond a shadow of a doubt, they were true. Okay? So here you go. First, first statement deals with women were the first witnesses. In John chapter 20, verse 1, it says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, you know this as well as I do. You're sophisticated people. You're biblically smart. In that day, time, and culture... If you're going to make up a story to perpetuate a a myth about a resurrected Jewish Messiah, there is no way, there is no way, there is no way you would have included women in the story. You just wouldn't do it. You would lose all credibility using women because women had no legal standing or social respect in that day and time. It's unfortunate, but it's true. I'm glad things have changed. Maybe they need to change more. But the truth of the matter is, in that day and time, women were, had no legal standing. They, were, they, they had no social respect. And, and they couldn't hold land. They couldn't run a business. They couldn't testify in court. You would have not have used a woman as a witness to your miraculous event. You just wouldn't have done it. And yet, all four Gospels mention the women. Matthew, Mark, and Luke mention a number of women. John only mentions Mary Magdalene. And think about that. Think about that. The Gospel writers, all four Gospel writers, particularly John, mention Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene from whom seven demons were exercised. So not only does your witness lack legal credibility, and not only does your witness lack social political standing, But she also spent most of her life as an outcast because people thought she was mentally ill. And in that day and time, they didn't comfort mental illness. They didn't try to help mental illness. They just kicked you to the curb. Are you really going to make up a story where your star witness is a mentally unstable social reject who had no legal credibility? I just don't think you would do that. The only plausible explanation for including Mary Magdalene in the story is that it really happened exactly the way John wrote it. 
See, this isn't a fabricated fable. This is a historically reliable event. Now, secondly, the disciples were not expecting the resurrection. Look with me in verse 2. So she, Mary Magdalene, ran, and she went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, known as John, and she said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So here's what's happening. Early the first day of the week, Sunday, after sitting anxiously through the, the Sabbath, Jewish Sabbath, a group of women, including Mary Magdalene, go to the tomb because they want to complete the burial process. It didn't get completed on Friday afternoon. They're thinking the body is still there. They're thinking the body is going to stay there. They are not thinking there's going to be a resurrection. But they should have been thinking there was going to be a resurrection. The four Gospels all tell us on numerous occasions, Jesus thought that he would go to Jerusalem, he would be arrested by the Jews, handed over to the Romans who would beat him, scourge him, crucify him, he would be buried in a borrowed tomb, and three days later, he would rise from the grave. He repeatedly taught this. They should have known this. Matthew chapter 16 teaches this. Matthew chapter 17 teaches this. Matthew chapter 20 teaches this. Luke chapter 8 teaches this. Luke chapter 18 teaches this. Repeatedly, Jesus taught what was going to happen, but the disciples didn't listen, because, and, and they didn't expect the re resurrection, and they weren't prepared when it happened because it didn't fit their Jewish theological presuppositions. And we all have a bias by which we receive the Word of God. And in their bias, they completely lost sight of, rejected the idea of a resurrection because it didn't fit what they'd been taught growing up as boys. Look what Mark said. For Jesus was teaching ongoing continually, ongoing continually, over and over and over, not a one-time event. Jesus was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But the disciples did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Now listen, if you're making this up, if you're writing this decades later, and you can write it any way you want, you're not going to make your leaders look this un incompetent. You're not going to. You would have the disciples gathered at the cemetery early on Sunday morning. And they would be there ready to celebrate as their rabbi walked out of the tomb. If you're going to lie, you're not going to have the disciples hiding in an upper room, fearfully depressed, while a bunch of women go to finish the burying process. You just wouldn't write it that way. If you're fabricating a myth, if you're making up a lie, this is not what you would have said. You would only say it this way if this is how it really happened. Number three, the cloth was laying just where it should have been. Look in verse three. So Peter went out with the other disciple. And they were going toward the tomb. And both of them were running together. But the other disciple, John, who was younger, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there. But he did not go in. Chicken. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and he went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloth lying there. 
And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. So listen, here's what's happening. When Peter and John arrived at the tomb, they found the burial cloth. So when, when, when Nicodemus and Joseph Arimathea got the body, they wrapped him Egyptian mummy style. Okay? And, and so Peter and John get to the tomb and they find the burial cloth laying right where it should have been. And see, this is more than just a good de- detail. This is more than just a, a well-written novel. This is really important because, see, today, no one denies the empty tomb. E- even the skeptics do not deny the empty tomb. It would have been way too easy for the, for the Jewish authorities or, or the Roman leaders to, to point to the body once the rumors begin to circulate that Jesus had risen. No one denies the empty tomb. The argument's how the body got out. So... Here's the point. If the disciples had stolen the body, the linen cloth would, would not have been lying there. Because, listen, even if you work up the courage to confront heavily armed, well-trained, mean Roman soldiers, and even if you manage to overpower the Roman soldiers, and even if you manage to roll the stone away, and you go in to, to steal the body, you are not, you are not going to take the time to unwrap a mummified body Pick up the body and carry it out and leave the cloth laying there. Out of fear, you're going to snatch the body and run as fast as you can to get away. Second thing, second thing, if you think about it, when Peter and John got news of the resurrection, the first thing they did was run to the cemetery. If you were guilty of a crime punishable by the execution on the cross, the last thing you're going to do is show back up at the cross. You're not going to go to the scene of the crime. You're going to do everything you can to stay away from the scene of the crime. You're going to stay away from Roman authorities. You're going nowhere near it because you're afraid they're going to be in on it. They're going to figure out what had happened, and you're going to be next. Third, if somebody else snatched the body, they also are going to take the body and leave because you're not going to stand up, a fully grown man, and unmummify him. I know that's not a word, but you understand. You're not going to take the time to unwrap him. It's just it's too much work. You're going to grab the body and go. Also, when they wrapped Jesus' body, Nicodemus and Joseph Arimathea loaded him with 75 pounds of spices. Alabaster, frankincense, myrrh, and other types of alloys. 75 pounds. We know this. 75 pounds. Do you know how expensive 75 pounds of frankincense is worth? It's hundreds and hundreds of dollars. So if you're going to steal the body, you're going to take the linens just for the, the stuff you can, the, the, the fragrances and the spices you can get out of the linens. You're going to harvest it. Nobody would have left the linen there. So if you're fabricating this, if you're making it up, if you're, if you're writing this down hundreds of years later, you would not have written this because nobody would have believed it. Number four, John saw and John believed. And this is huge, but this is the hardest one to explain. So hang in there with me. I'm about to lose my voice. At seven o'clock this morning, I had to out yell a rooster, and so I'm about to lose my voice. Yeah, we're doing our outside sunrise service and rooster either across the street or down the road or somewhere he decided to join in so look at verse 8 it says then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and based on what he saw 
not on superstitious myth, based on what he saw, based on eyewitness account, based on evidence, he believed. For as yet he did not understand the Old Testament prophecies of the resurrected Messiah, that he must rise from the dead. So here's my point. John saw and John believed. See, John didn't shake his brain at the door. He didn't make a a leap of blind faith. It wasn't believed in spite of what you see. It's believed because of what you see. And John saw an empty tomb with the linen cloth laying in the appropriate place. And John believed that Jesus was risen. Now think about it. Even though Jesus had taught that he would die and rise again, John and the other disciples had never grasped the concept. And up until this point, they didn't believe it because they held too, high, uh, too tightly to their Jewish belief of a resurrection at the end of time. See, Jewish theology taught there would be only one resurrection. It would be a universal resurrection. It would happen at the end of time and it would usher in eternity. If you want to understand what I'm saying, in John chapter 11, uh, John records a conversation between Jesus and Martha just before Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And if you listen to Martha, you understand she's not expecting that Jesus will raise Lazarus from the dead because it's not the end time where you will have the universal resurrection. Anyway, you, you can read that on your own. But here's where I'm going with this. Three years of John listening to Jesus proclaim that he would die and he would rise had done nothing to erode John's Jewish understanding of one resurrection at the end of time. But looking at the burial linens lying in an empty tomb instantly rewired everything John believed about Jesus' resurrection. John's presuppositions were so strong, he was resistant to Jesus' teachings, but he could not deny what he was seeing. And isn't that the way religious paradigm shifts actually occur? Isn't that how the Pharisee Saul became the Apostle Paul? And again, my presupposition is, if you were writing this decades later to fabricate a myth, you would base everything on Jesus' teachings, and John would have believed from day one that Jesus, what Jesus said was going to come true, and John would have been standing there in the cemetery waiting for the resurrection with his pom-poms and his shakers and his megaphone yelling, Go, Jesus, go! Go, Jesus, go! But because, Jesus, because John did not believe that, because he held too tightly to his Jewish theological presuppositions, when it occurred, he had to see it before he could believe it. And you only write that if that's how it actually happened. All right, here's a final thing, and we'll quit and go get lunch. By the way, I had enough breakfast today. I won't have to eat for several days. It was really good. Our, our, our folks outdid themselves. Fifth thing I want you to see is they went back home. See, in verse 10, the disciples left the empty tomb. And went back home. See, I read this and I go, that's so anticlimactic. Would you really write it that way? And again, it's my presupposition, it's my proposal that years later, if you're making this up to perpetuate a lie, you would have written how prepared the disciples were for the resurrection. How they anticipated the resurrection. And how they immediately 
went from the empty tomb with the risen Jesus to the marketplace of Jerusalem and began proclaiming the risen Jesus Christ. They would, you, you would make the, if, you were, if you're writing this decades later, you would make the disciples look so well organized and, so, and, and have such a well thought out evangelism plan that they would have been so ready for taking Jesus to the Jews and there would have been a scheduled evangelism uh, event with prayer meetings and marketing campaigns and guest speakers lined up. If you're writing this decades later, you would have made the disciples look so prepared. You would not write that they quietly went home to process through what they had just seen on the very first Easter Sunday. But John wrote it this way because that's exactly how it happened. And here's the deal. They may have gone home that day, but they didn't stay home. 50 days later, on the day of Pentecost, they stepped out of that upper room, empowered by the indwelling Holy Spirit, and emboldened by their eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus. And they stepped into the marketplace of Jerusalem, and they looked at the people who were, who were responsible for putting Jesus on the cross, and they boldly proclaimed that Jesus that you crucified, God has risen from the dead, and they did it with such boldness and such sincerity and such genuineness and so believable that 3,000 souls gave their life to Christ that very day. And then when you get to the next chapter of the book of Acts, it says God added daily those who were being saved. And then it says Pharisees were coming to salvation in Jesus. You know why Pharisees who were guilty of crucifying Jesus are now believing that Jesus is God? Because they had seen him die and they had seen him risen. I'm tell you what, when you watch him come off the cross and you know he's dead and you watch him wrap him in cloth and put him in a tomb and you know he lays there for three days and the body should have just been rotting over a three-day period and then you later see him and, and, and the scars in his hands are healed and the scars in his feet are healed and the scars in his brow are healed and the scar in his side is healed. You know that you know that you know that cannot have happened unless God did something miraculous. He must be who he claims he is and he claims to be God. And I'm going to believe that it's true because it's reasonable. See, see I, I think, I, I just have such a hard time wrapping my head around the idea that a ragtag bunch of blue-collar fishermen from a Roman outpost turned the world upside down preaching that a Jewish rabbi died and came back to life if it wasn't true. I mean, that just makes no sense. And we know from Roman historians, not biblical historians, but Roman historians, Tatus, for instance, wrote that within 25 years, there were so many Christians in Rome that Nero didn't know what to do with them, so he started killing them. Now think about that. In the days before social media and television and the printing press and the automobile, the gospel message traveled from Jerusalem 2,200 miles away to Rome and was believed by so many people that the greatest empire on earth at the time didn't know how to handle it. You really think that could happen based on a lie? I just don't have that much faith. I just don't. I can't believe that could happen on some, based on something that wasn't true. John MacArthur wrote this. 
It was the belief in the resurrection and the belief in the resurrection alone that turned heartbroken followers of a crucified rabbi into courageous martyrs who led the early church. That just has so much credibility for me. Listen, the disciples were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And they have recorded for us a reliable account of the action of Jesus following his resurrection. And I do not believe that you have to believe in the resurrection of Jesus based on blind, superstitious faith. I believe you can wholeheartedly and without reservation commit your life to Jesus Christ because the evidence in the Bible is reliable and it is true. Now, I've told you this before. See, unfortunately, we've got too many people who try to approach Scripture or, or, or biblical accounts from a scientific standpoint. But you can't. Because it's, it's, it's historical. You don't approach anything historical from a scientific standpoint. See, as Vody Bauckham says, you can't prove George Washington scientifically because you can't measure him, observe him, or, or reproduce him. So you can't prove Scripture through a scientific method, and, no, and nobody tries historically. But you can prove Scripture historically accurate if you approach it from a historical standpoint. And from a historical standpoint, the, the, the resurrection makes complete sense. And so it's my assertion, you, you, you better, you need to, commit your life wholeheartedly and without reservation to Jesus Christ because the evidence in the Bible is reliable and true and worth being followed. It's my assertion you better believe because if the rest of Scripture is true, eternity depends on it. Here at West Hartzell, we would like to help you in any way we can, whether it's prayer, support, or understanding, please feel free to visit our website, www.westhartzell.com. That's W-E-S-T-H-A-R-T-S-E-L-L-E. Or contact Brother Greg, our pastor, directly at greg at westhartzell.com.